1: Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists.
0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. We've got our first one, Chris, actually, which has uh, come in from uh, Dom. And he says, as always, he has a question every week. And thank you, Dom, for that. How do they make decaffeinated coffee caffeine-free? Chris. Yes,
1: very good question. Because the worry, of course, is when you're trying to take something out of something, how do you only take the bit out that you want and not the good stuff? And actually, it's quite clever how they do this. The answer is you use various solvents to do it. And what you do is you make a very strong solution of uh, decaf coffee and you bathe your beans in the decaf and or, or in a coffee solution minus the caffeine and you can extract caffeine using various solvents and things. Um, and by bathing the beans in a very strong solution of coffee but with no caffeine around the coffee beans... The caffeine comes out but the flavors stay in because there's as much flavor diffusing into the bean as diffusing out of the bean so you state you get coffee beans that have all the taste, all the flavour, but none of the caffeine. And then when you grind those beans up and turn them into coffee that you're going to use to drink, it doesn't have any caffeine in it. Actually, to to make that solution of decaffeinated coffee in the first place, there are various ways of doing it. Um, Originally, people used to use various organic solvents. Now people are looking at using things like supercritical CO2. So in in other words, if you put uh, carbon dioxide under lots of pressure, then it forms this interesting liquid like substance and because the co2 behaves like an oil as in, in this liquid form it dissolves oil soluble chemicals and that includes caffeine so the caffeine moves into the liquid co2 you can then take away all the other substances with just the liquid co2 sitting there with the caffeine dissolved in it and if you then take the pressure off then the caffeine, the CO2 turns from a liquid back into a gas and you can uh, leave the caffeine behind and then you've got no waste products because CO2 is just a harmless gas and you've also got uh, your decaf and then you can use that to do what I said earlier which is to, to make a solution which um, has all the flavour locked into the beans and none of the caffeine.
0: I do like my coffee strong, I have to say. It's one of my, my pleasures of the morning. Good, strong, hot coffee. It's yeah. quite
1: an addictive drug, actually, caffeine. Absolutely. Does it do and, as much um, harm? Uh, there 's not much evidence that it that it does a lot of harm. There was a study that got done a few years ago by a large insurance company in America, and what they were looking at was whether it could harm or affect pregnant women. Hmm. Uh, there was some suggestion previously that it might be linked to miscarriages in some people hmm. and so what they did was to look at the miscarriage rate among women who had no coffee small amount of coffee, large amount of coffee and what they found was that the miscarriage rate did increase with anything more than the equivalent of about one strong cup of coffee a day and so that's why there is guidance given to women at least in the early stages of pregnancy that it's probably better to avoid strongly caffeinated beverages because caffeine potentiates the action of adrenaline adrenaline being one of the body's arousal and excitement hormones and it causes blood vessels to close up in some cases, open up in other cases and it also has other effects in the body And because the uterus, the womb, which is where babies grow, has to supply all of the blood. That, and, and energy and food that a developing baby needs if the blood vessels supplying the wall of the uterus are manipulated chemically by caffeine through its effects on adrenaline that could be one of the reasons why it can have an effect on an unborn baby and so that's why doctors advise women who are either trying to get pregnant or in the early stages of pregnancy probably to cut down on coffee if you're a heavy coffee drinker Tony is
0: on the line hello Tony
1: good evening sir
0: you're through to Dr Chris what's your question
1: Um, Well, When you get older, um, your taste changes. Everything tastes a bit bland. That is correct, is it, for everybody, Doctor? With age, yes, unfortunately, our special senses, in other words, things like sight and smell and hearing and taste, those sorts of things do get a bit less acute. Uh And one of the reasons why taste goes isn't so much because of what's going on in the mouth as what's going on in the nose. In the nose, this accounts for the majority of what we call taste. There are various nerve endings, receptors if you like, they're like docking stations for chemicals. And when you take a mouthful of food, the food gives off various volatile, in other words, readily evaporating chemicals... And these molecules go up the back of your throat and into the nose and they hit these molecular docking stations that recognise them as odorants or smells. The spectrum of nerve fibres that see these different smells then send signals to the brain and the brain puts all these different smell signals together to make the taste sensation or what we call a taste sensation that we're experiencing. But throughout life, these nerve cells get damaged. Whenever you have a bad cold or you breathe in a toxic chemical, the receptors can be damaged. And for this reason, the nerve cells have the ability to regenerate themselves. And they're one of the few examples of cells in the brain and central nervous system or which have connections to the central nervous system that can routinely regenerate themselves. But as we get older, that regenerative ability seems to decline. So there tends to be a loss of density of these nerve cells and therefore the ability to pick up and smell different smells and flavours and therefore experience tastes, because most of what we call taste, as I say, is smell. That declines, unfortunately, which can mean that as we get older you end up feeling that things don't taste quite as nice as they used to. And in fact this can be a big problem, encouraging some older people to ensure that they eat well because food doesn't taste so nice, can be a bit of a challenge. And so that's why ensuring that people get good nutritional intake that, that is excitingly flavoured and excitingly textured is a big priority. And it's, it's quite a skill, actually, making sure that, that people eat properly when they get older.
0: Yeah, can something taste different? In other words, I used to test the taste of gin... And now it seems to taste quite nice. <laughs> I think we can all say the same, actually, can't we? Um, Lovely. To a certain
1: extent, there's a degree of a, it being an acquired taste. I know when I was little, I used to think that whiskey was disgusting and I couldn't understand why anyone wanted to drink it. Uh-huh. Now I'm a bit older, I actually am quite partial to a little bit of whiskey <laughs> now. And then. So Very I think good. to a certain extent that there's a, an acquired taste effect. Um, and you get used to certain flavours, or it's less of a shock, and so you actually think, oh, I, do, I do actually quite like this. Uh, at the same time, it's possible that with the loss of some of these receptors or nerve cells, which signal our ability to smell and taste things, it could be that if you lose certain ones that previously were picking up various chemicals from whatever the food or drink was that you found distasteful, and were making it taste distasteful to you, if you lose those cells, perhaps it leaves behind a more favourable, cocktail of receptors which are picking up what to you seems to be a more favourable taste and I'm speculating here um, but that would seem like a logical explanation for why over the course of a lifetime things that we previously find distasteful we then subsequently Change. decide we actually quite like. But, but my overriding answer would be that's a possibility, but it's more likely that it's just a personal choice thing and that in the same way as when we try something new, sometimes we don't always like it, but with continued exposure, eventually you come around to the idea that, mm, actually, this does taste quite nice and <laughs> can't think what the fuss was <laughs> about.
0: Tony, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sue. Take care. Bye-bye. Bless you. Bye. Now, we have a question here uh, about smell, and it comes from, I think it's Foy Nguyen. Um, who says, um, Dr. Chris, I love the show, visited your website many times. I've got a question for you. What actually makes things smell? Chris. Well, in some respects, uh, the sense of smell is a bit
1: like the way in which we pick up light, because when you think about light, the light that we're seeing, what we actually call a certain colour or a thing looking a certain way is actually achieved because the eye the retina is interpreting all of the different wavelengths of light that are coming in as one particular color or one particular shade it's exactly the same with smell actually except that instead of photons of light coming in you're playing around with other types of particles little molecules now most substances give off some kind of molecule so if you, if you look at the flowers in your garden, the reason they have a scent is because the cells in the plant are making various molecules of different shapes and sizes which come out of the plant and they diffuse into the air. And when you breathe them in, these molecules go up your nose and they hit the olfactory epithelium, which is a layer at the top of the nose which is bedecked with these beautiful array of receptors, chemical docking stations, which are wired up to the nervous system. And each of these different classes of receptors are slightly different shapes, and different molecules have different shapes, and so they can fit into these different receptors. Some molecules fit into some receptors better than others, and they can stimulate a range of these different receptors. And so, when we smell something, what you're actually smelling is a cocktail of different chemicals coming in from the environment locking onto these receptors that are the right shapes for them, more or less, and the spectrum of receptors that are being recruited or activated by these smell molecules are then signalling that to the brain, which then decides what the ultimate smell sensation is. I suppose it's a bit like making a cocktail with with different types of drinks. When you mix different things together, you get a drink that tastes different depending upon how much of each different substance you add and how much of each different substance you add determines how strongly those substances bombard these receptors in the nose and activate them. And so that's why some things smell different depending upon how much of them is present if you smell something and it's present at very low levels it can smell quite nice if you put lots of it up your nose it can smell unpleasant because as well as stimulating just a certain group of receptors it also can jam its way into some of the other receptors as well and stimulate those and they may might actually make you think the substance doesn't smell quite so nice so that's the reason that having more of a substance can actually alter the smell sensation as well as making it smell stronger it can also smell a bit different in some cases less pleasant
0: what decides your brain whether you like the smell of something or not well that's
1: a really hard question to answer and it's all down to personal difference tony was asking why do we like certain flavors and why does our taste change with age it's all down to personal preferences and to a certain extent perhaps also down to hormones because we know that women's taste changes mm. in two, two ways one is when they're menstrual so during the menstrual cycle uh, this can change the women's women's taste for various things and different foodstuffs and chocolate and things. That's definitely true, according to my wife. Yeah. And the other is with pregnancy. Another time when there's lots of hormones washing around, women say that they develop a strange appetite that they can't explain for certain foodstuffs at certain stages of pregnancy. They get cravings. And it might be that this is because hormones can manipulate our personal taste for things or the way we appreciate certain smells and make you want to eat certain things or avoid other things that might be bad for you when you're pregnant so you eat things and like things that might be good for you when you're pregnant or which, which contain trace elements that you need whilst at the same time putting you off of things that actually might be quite bad for you were you to eat them when you're pregnant and so that's why some women will say normally love
0: substance X when I was pregnant, couldn't stand it, made me feel sick that's well, quite common Anyway, let's go to the phones again this time because we've got Jill who's on the line from Ipswich Hello Jill Hello, Sue again. Hello. You're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? Hello, Dr Chris. Hello, Jill. Um, well, last night I had, a well, a dreadful dream, and I won't go into the details. It seemed to have lasted for the five hours, from half past 11 to half past four, and everything was so vivid, and normally when you have a dream, you don't remember it, do you? And I do this. Are you really sleeping normally? Are you having a good sleep?
1: Your question's a really interesting one when you say, well, this dream seemed to go on for ages. Mm. The reality is that it probably lasted a very short time, seconds or minutes at most. Really? But because the brain is recreating various experiences when we're dreaming, it totally distorts the clock that would normally keep time. And in the same way as you're experiencing artificial happenings when you're dreaming, you also experience artificial passage of time, so time can seem to pass very quickly or very slowly when you're dreaming, and and the the real concept or the real ability to gauge time when you're dreaming is just as distorted as the reality that gives you these funny happenings when you dream and if you look at someone when they go to sleep, scientists know pretty well when we dream, when you nod off at night, as you go through the night, you go through various sleep phases, so you go to sleep And then you go into a deep sleep, and then there's a stage of very near wakefulness. Brain waves change very dramatically. People become very aroused in their sleep. They're very active. Their eyes begin to move around a lot beneath the eyelids. This is called rapid eye movement sleep, not surprisingly. And this is when dreaming happens. What we know about dreaming is that when you develop these dreams, the same parts of the brain which are active during the day when you're awake, interpreting the things going on in the world around you. They become artificially active when you're asleep and present to your sleeping consciousness, if you like, if you can be conscious when you're unconscious, if you see what I mean, but they present to you while you're asleep the activity that would happen if you were really witnessing the thing that you're witnessing when you're asleep. So, in other words, if you're, when you're walking around during the daytime and you're looking at something... The part of the brain that processes vision is being activated by the thing you're looking at. Well, when you go to sleep, although you're not looking at anything, those same parts of the brain turn on and present pictures to you that the brain is making up or it's building from previous experiences or things you've seen perhaps things you've watched in the news and because your brain is presenting that to you you can't tell the difference between what's real and what isn't real which is why we think our dreams are so real to us because our brain is making them and that's why you experience them
0: okay jill thank you you're welcome bye bye Let's go to um, our next question, which Billy had sent in. Now, Chris, he was asking about uh, difficulty about passing water when you're over 80. Any old w- wives tell? How, you know, how can you um, help yourself to pass water, and why does it cause difficulty when you get to a certain age? Chris? Well,
1: it's chiefly my sex, men, that this happens to, unfortunately. And the reason for this is down to a gland that most people know the name of, certainly once they're over the age of 50, and that's the prostate. Not prostrate, it's prostate. And the prostate is a gland which sits at the bottom of the bladder and it surrounds the outlet from the bladder called the urethra. And for some reason, as we age, the prostate doesn't remain the same size, but it continues to grow and it grows by adding new cells and this is called benign prostatic hyperplasia. In other words, it's benign because it's not caused by a cancer, it's the prostate that's doing it, and hyperplasia means an increase in the number of cells. And these cells take up space, and this means that because the prostate takes up more space and the urethra is a hollow tube running through the middle of it, the prostate tissue presses on the tube and it narrows the outlet from the bladder, are therefore making it more difficult for urine to leave. And eventually it can get so bad that the tube is, is obstructed completely, and this can mean people can go into urinary retention. And this is very, very uncomfortable, very unpleasant, and actually very easy to relieve, um, because you have to pass a tube into the bladder, and then people feel better, and in fact they've never felt so happy and relieved in their lives actually when they have this, because you just have never wanted to go to the loo so badly. Um, but the the problem is that it can happen again and again and again once it gets to that stage, and when it does get to that stage, then what some people do is go and have some of the prostate tissue taken away in a prostate resection, and this can actually be done by putting a tube into the bladder uh, a camera and then seeing the bits of prostate that are too big and cutting them away and you can do this via things like laser to take it away or with diathermy um, electrical uh, wires will cut the extra tissue away and it's very very simple to do and has very very few complications but can make a very big difference to people's outcomes another reason why you can end up with outflow obstruction like this from the bladder in old age is because unfortunately prostates can become cancerous and it's very very common actually but as a cause of death thankfully not too common in other words people can develop prostate cancers but they don't often necessarily develop serious complications of having them but it's one other reason why the prostate gland can get bigger and can cause urinary symptoms or bleeding and if anyone has those symptoms it's always worth getting it checked out to make sure that there's not something else going on it's probably going to be nothing but it's worth getting it checked just in case there is some kind of cancerous change happening there. And and that that unfortunately is very, very common. The, The argument is that once we get to about the age of 80, then the majority of people probably have some cells in their prostate that are abnormal, but they may never actually become a problem for that person. So I don't want anyone to worry about it, but just be aware that this can happen, and therefore if symptoms do occur, you should get them checked out.
0: Thank you very much. Let's get to another question now. Um, From David. Now, he asked, Chris, how do creatures get the bacteria that naturally lives inside us? Good question. Chris?
1: Well, the answer is we get them from the environment. What David's getting at is the natural flora that live inside us. It might shock some people to know that there are about 50 to 100 times more bacterial cells living in us and on us than there are actually cells of human origin in our our entire bodies. So some people have said that this means we're actually passengers in our own bodies, we're carting round, this huge numbers of bacteria all over the place but they are actually our closest allies and our best friends some of these bacteria. These are our so-called good bacteria, and without them we would be much less healthy and we'd probably be much, much less well-fed because these bacteria do all kinds of exciting jobs for humans because there are only about 20,000 genes running a human. But when you have thousands of different species of bacteria living on you and in you, each of those bacteria can bring to the party their own genetic and metabolic know-how. So the bacteria that live in our intestines, although we don't know how to break down certain things in foods or produce certain micronutrients and even some vitamins, bacteria, on the other hand, do have the ability to do that. And so by being inside us, bacteria can extract additional nutrients and energy from the food that we eat and then they can make that available to us in one form or another the other important job they do is that by taking up space inside us and removing certain trace nutrients they prevent nasty bacteria pathogens from gaining a toehold so it's a bit like growing grass all over your lawn and that keeps the weeds at bay because the grass competes with the weeds and the weeds find it much harder to grow big because there's grass in the way if you ploughed up the garden and just left it then you'd have weeds galore out there and the good bacteria we have do that for us, and we acquire them from the environment. And it sounds pretty gross to say this, but actually when a newborn baby is first coming into the world and it's coming out the way that nature intended, let's say, its first taste of life is actually a mouthful of muck. It's mother's muck. So there's flora, there's bacteria, in other words, from that area the baby's coming out from and the mum's bum and everything going in the baby's mouth. And you think, ugh, that sounds disgusting! But there's loads of really good bacteria that are being shed from the mum's body and those bacteria are living on mum because of the diet she eats, the environment that she lives in, and therefore they're perfect for that baby in the future. And those bacteria go in, the baby swallows them, they take up residence all the way through the baby's intestines and on the baby's skin and they slowly change and refine their numbers to be a perfect bacterial cross-section for that particular individual and what's really amazing is that the bacteria we have in us and on us are probably more unique to us actually than our fingerprints are and scientists have shown this in recent months they've actually started to use the bacterial fingerprint to identify where people have been you can swab a surface and just by looking at the different cross section of and species of bacteria you find you can identify who touched certain things, because we have this unique cross-section of bacteria on us that stays with us for our entire lifetime and is tailor-made and bespoke to us. And if we disturb it, then we're much less healthy. You can get things like diarrhoea, you can grow less well, and you don't feel as healthy. And when you get the balance back, you feel much better. So we owe a lot to these bacteria that live in us, and they come to us usually from mum when we're first born, and we pick them up and supplement them from the environment uh, during our early years.
0: Mm. This one is about our brain. Uh, Mark says, I've helped a few friends who fall in love, then separate and get back together again and then separate. Uh, He says, is there a part of the brain which helps with logic and people go back for more? Um, Does love rule the brain? Mark. Chris.
1: Chris. I think, yes, it probably does, because at the end of the day, um, we know that humans work best when they're in a partnership, and usually from a partnership, if, if it's between a man and a woman, then you can get children. And at the end of the day, our genes are telling us we want to have children, we want to reproduce and increase our numbers, which is why there's so many of us on Earth today. 6.8 billion was the last number I looked at. It's probably even higher now. Um, but the the answer is, yes, there is a part of the brain that makes us want to fall in love, Love can be reduced and distilled down to a simple set of chemicals, in fact. It may disappoint some people to know that. But love, uh, as, as Brian Ferry saying, it, is a drug and I need to score. Well, actually many of the chemicals that uh, we ascribe to that loving feeling in the brain do actually have addictive potential. When you get addicted to certain drugs like heroin and cocaine, they are making the brain have little surges of dopamine, a nerve-transmitter chemical. And when people look at pictures scientists have shown, uh, in a brain scanner, and they look at pictures of their loved ones, they get little surges of dopamine. So you could say that we're addicted to the people that we love. They've also found a number of other reasons why we tend to fall in love. And there's one hormone which is called oxytocin, which um, is very important in women's brains. Um, When women have uh, a baby, when a baby comes out, when a baby's born, also when the baby breastfeeds, and when a woman has sex, she produces oxytocin. This goes into the brain and it tends to make the woman trust explicitly the person she's with. So it engenders the sensation of trust, which is all part of being in love with someone. And in men, there seems to be this very important uh, signal called uh, vasopressin, which is another hormone. And this activates vasopressin receptors in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is the brain's pleasure centre. And what uh, scientists have found is that when men um, fall in love, certain uh, receptors or docking stations for vasopressin tend to or seem to get stimulated, and this tends to make the man be very protective towards the woman. And scientists have done experiments on animals where they show that if they manipulate the levels of these vasopressin receptors, they can change how protective a male is towards a female. They've done this in voles, and also whether the male is faithful to the female or not. And scientists have now, in Sweden, done studies on humans and seen different versions of these receptors for vasopressin in the brain, and they have shown that some people have certain forms that make them more likely to be unfaithful in marriage and have arguments and end up in divorce Than others. So it looks like whether or not you're faithful even comes down to genes. So unfortunately, all this lovely notion of of love being this pure thing, it all comes down to genes and chemicals, which doesn't sound quite so romantic when it's put like that, does it?
0: No, it doesn't, no. I'll go and change my jeans. Uh, one here from um, John. He says, um, not exactly science, but was there ever a wild native to Britain um, in the form of cattle? And if so, what would they have looked like? Chris, well, the cows that
1: we have around today, uh, that we get milk from and that we get beef from, these are cows that have been bred selectively for the process of yielding a lot of milk or being good for food. The ancestors of cows were things resembling yaks which were Asian species, and so cows are not indigenous to this country. And the cows that we see around today, most of our cow he- uh, cattle in this country are Frisians, British Frisians, which were bred selectively. Farmers chose to breed one type of animal with another type of animal based on the traits that each had to produce, in the same way as we breed dogs to produce certain characteristics, cows that were ideal for the environment that they wanted. If you were to wind the clock back 100 years or so, though, we didn't have that almost monoculture of British Frisians. There were lots and lots of localised cow herds where farmers over generations of farming families would grow certain cattle herds up and they would enrich for certain traits in their cattle. And we had many, many different sorts of breeds of cattle in Britain. Many of those numbers are now gone and have been replaced by British Frisians. Um, but they do still exist here and there. There are some, some certain cattle, but they're all imports. They would have been brought into Britain um, from species that were bred selectively more centrally in Europe and in Asia and then they would have come with the people um, when they came to, to Britain um, thousands of years ago actually um, but the ancestor of these cows was something resembling a yak um, and the cows we have around today uh, only exist in the way they and the forms that they do largely because of
0: us. Excellent stuff. Now then Anne has sent an email in it reads as following. As a small child, I was horribly ill with gastroenteritis and I wonder, can one's insides learn to reject things for reasons other than allergy or sensitivity?
1: Well, usually the reason that the guts uh, rebel is because they've either detected that there's something bad for you in what you've eaten or they've been infected by something. Because there can be toxins in food which can be put there by microorganisms or by other sources, various poisons, or when microbes go in, either bacteria or viruses, they can produce toxins inside you, or the viruses can infect the cells that line the gut, and they then damage the cells. And again, the gut is programmed to be sensitive to those particular substances that the virus is uh, producing or the damage it's doing. And the response of the intestine is to eject the contents upwards or downwards in order to reduce the threat. Um, There are other possibilities, which are that certain things in certain foods can also stimulate immune responses in certain people. In other words, there's some kind of food intolerance in some people. Celiac disease, where people eat gluten and it damages the lining of the intestine, that's one example. It doesn't normally make people sick, but it does cause a malabsorption state. In other words, they're not getting enough calories out of the food they eat. So there's a range of reasons why people might have... Um, tummy symptoms Um, and I don't think it's a question of the gut learning um, that there's something wrong I think it's more that the immune system uh, under certain circumstances learns there's something
0: wrong and then provokes something to be done about it. That's it for this week.